Amen. I am so grateful for songs like that that help me give expression to the desires of my heart because I, I so often fail to live a life of supernatural power. But that's what God makes available to us. So when we sing these songs like this, asking the Lord to send his spirit and to allow that to be the difference in us so that we can live lives that are marked by supernatural activity, live lives that are not merely mundane, but live lives that display in tangible ways that we're being freed from this problem that we have with sin, that's when we display the character of God, and that's when people can see his presence right here on this earth as we wait for him to return. You know, there's no shortage of news in this world, and most of it is bad. You just flip on your TV or turn on the radio, and you hear time and time again of all the things that are going on in this world that really are bad. ISIS is persecuting Christians in ways that look like the grisly accounts that are recorded in the scriptures. We've got California in the midst of a, a drought, the likes of which we haven't seen. We've got the United States, both on the personal level and on the national level, that are up to our eyeballs in debt. There are things that we walk into the back of this sanctuary as we come in this morning to worship, those sorts of news items that are on our minds. So as you come in, I'm wondering, what is it that's on your mind this morning? What kind of news is on your mind? Preoccupying your thoughts. Is it some of these big things that we've just talked about? Or maybe it's something a little bit closer to home. Maybe it's the fact that you just lost your job and you're looking for employment. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's you just got fresh news again this week that your besetting sin still has a grip on you. That sin that you've known various degrees of success and failure from, but this week you just realized that it still has some sway in your life. And if you're like me, you walked in here with that sort of stuff on your mind. And your heart needed to be shepherded like mine did when we sang that song, Lord, make my life a miracle. Because unless you show up, unless you empower me by your spirit, it's not going to go well. We all walk in here with news on our minds of various kinds. And this sermon is entitled, Good News. We need some good news because we live in a world that's characterized by bad news. And my goal today is to, to have each one of us loving the good news and rejoicing in the good news. The essence of that good news is that there is a sovereign ruler who is over your life. Now I realize I'm addressing Americans who live in freedom and the idea of a sovereign ruler exercising dominion over your life doesn't naturally sound like a good thing. It doesn't sound like good news. But that is what Jesus proclaims. Jesus proclaims good news of the gospel of God. And the fact is, is that God is sovereign and he's benevolent 
and he's exercising dominion over our lives. So I hope that we will all cherish that good news and live lives that point to that good news. That's what we want to do here today. We're going to open our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, so please open your Bible, grab it from under your chair or from your lap, open it up to Mark chapter 1. And last week, Dave Talley preached, and he helped us realize that Mark was showing us through a number of ways that Jesus was undeniably the one that these people had been waiting for. They'd been waiting for the blessing of God. They'd been waiting for God to show up and exercise dominion over those authorities in their life that have been oppressing them. And through the ministry of John, who preached a baptism of repentance in preparation for the coming of Jesus, and through the ministry of the prophets that pointed these people to three things that they were looking for, for the the one who would come and initiate in this kingdom, this expression of the blessings of God. They were looking for the heavens to be opened up. They were looking for the Holy Spirit to come down. And they were looking or listening for a voice of God to place his stamp of approval on this one. And when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River, all three of those things came true. Mark is saying, Jesus is undeniably the one you've been waiting for. From there, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan himself. Tempted in the same way that you and I have been tempted over and over and over again. But Jesus, unlike you and I, passed this test with flying colors. And from there, he enters. He comes out of the wilderness, enters into Galilee, and that's where we pick up the story today in Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. I'd like to pause and pray and then we'll read it. Father, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. We thank you for these words that you have preserved for us over the centuries and the millennia. We thank you, Lord, that these are the words of life. They reveal your character to us. They explain to us who our Savior Jesus is. They show us what his life and ministry looked like and they explain to us the good news of your sovereign and benevolent rule over your people. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear this morning as we open it and read it. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are prepared as fertile soil to respond appropriately to the call that you place on our lives. So, Lord, we look to you this morning, recognizing that unless you send forth your spirit, we will remain hardened We will not be moved. We will not live lives that are changed. We will not live lives that are supernatural. But if you are so gracious as to send forth your spirit to fill this place and to fill us, there's no telling what you can do in us and through us to glorify yourself and to display your character and your good in us and through us. So we present ourselves to you now. We sit under the authoritative teaching and preaching of your word as your humble servants. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Reading from Mark, chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, repent, and believe in the gospel. 
Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. After the temptation, Jesus now comes into Galilee, and he comes proclaiming the gospel of God. And when I read this, and I thought about how on earth am I going to teach this, I don't know what that ministry must have looked like for Jesus to walk into Galilee and to begin proclaiming the gospel of God. Is he actually, I mean, we think of the gospel in terms of 1 Corinthians 15, which at this point hasn't been written yet. The death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as a perfect atoning sacrifice for sins. That's the fullness of the gospel. And that 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 sacrifice is laid hold of by you and by me through through faith through repentance and faith. Is that what Jesus was preaching? Did he walk into Galilee and proclaim his death? I don't think so. That would be what he would begin eventually to explain to his disciples, but they wouldn't get it. They had been looking for this one who would come and set up God's kingdom right there with them, and they didn't have a category for this guy who would walk the road of suffering, who would walk all the way... to Golgotha and hang there on a tree and shed his blood, suffering the most cruel death known to humankind. They didn't have a category for that. So when Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, I'm grateful that Mark includes his words. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus proclaims the gospel of God, the good news of God, saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Now Mark has already made reference to Isaiah chapter 40 in in pointing to John as being the one who was coming to make preparation, in preparation for the one who would come and initiate this kingdom. So the idea of a sovereign God exercising dominion over his people, that's not a new idea. That's been been displayed to us through the scriptures all through. In in Genesis 1.1, we see and hear and read, God, in the beginning was God, and he created the heavens and the earth. And when you read the account of that, the detail account of that, he creates the heavens and the earth by speaking a word. Out of nothing, matter is created in humble obedience to the spoken word of our triune God. That is sovereignty. I don't have that level of authority. You don't have that level of authority. But our triune God has the level of authority that can be displayed in a miraculous creation by simply speaking a word and stuff happens out of nothing. We see God's benevolent character in providing for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. 
It's a beautiful place, lush with green plants and, and trees that are bearing fruit. And he gives all of that to them as provision for their needs. Everything that they have, they, they, they have been given by their benevolent king. And he gives them one command, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in Genesis chapter three, we see that they disobeyed that command. They disobeyed the sovereign, benevolent command of their king, and they chose to go their own way. And in so doing, they ended up having a broken relationship with God. And pain entered into their world, and difficulty entered into their world, and death entered into their world, both physical and spiritual. And every one of us who has been born on this earth since that time, that's all of us, has been born into sin. And the only world that we have known is a fallen one, one that is groaning in the pains of childbirth until the glory of God appears. We see God's provision for his people in calling Abram. And Abram, he promises him to to make of him a great nation and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. We see God making provision for his people when a famine comes and he leads them down into Egypt because there's plenty there. And he's already prepared a man named Joseph who is now the right-hand man of Pharaoh. And Joseph is wise. And through, through Joseph, God provides for his people down in Egypt. That ends up leading to oppression. And God calls Moses. And under Moses' leadership, he leads his people out of that oppression. God is caring for his people as a sovereign king. He's caring for his people as a benevolent king. That goes on and on and on until the people demand for themselves a king like the other nations. They want a human king to lead them into battle. So they get the king that they asked for in Saul. But Saul fails. He fails to obey God and he is rejected by God. Then God sends Samuel to anoint David. David is raised up as king. And God makes promises through Samuel to David that one day a descendant of David would be seated on the throne and his throne would be established forever. And since that point, the people of God have been waiting for this descendant of David to come onto the scene and to take that throne and to provide for them freedom from their oppressors. And that happened beyond, after David, the kingdom was divided. Both Israel and Judah ended up eventually under bad, evil kings who failed to order themselves under God's sovereign and loving hand. They ultimately were led into captivity. They were led into exile. But even in exile, God used the prophets to keep the idea of God's kingly rule over them on the forefront of their minds. And Mark has used one of the prophets, Isaiah. He's pointed to Isaiah 40, verse 3, in explaining what John the Baptist, what role John the Baptist plays as the preparatory preacher. And it's that same mindset that these people would have. They would, they would recognize as Jesus comes in proclaiming the good news of God, they would have verses like Isaiah 40, verse 9 on their mind. 
Get you up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. The good news that is being proclaimed is that right there, here, here is your God. Isaiah 52, verse 7, the prophet says, How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to, God, to Zion, Your God reigns. In this verse, the good news that is being proclaimed to Zion is the fact that your God exists and he is reigning over you. And because he does, he can speak of peace. He can speak of happiness. And he speaks of salvation. In Isaiah 59, verse 20, it says, And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And there, the the good news is, is that this redeemer, the one who is coming, the one they've been longing for, He will come and appear and bestow his blessings, not as a blanket on everyone, but on those who turn from transgression. In the words of Jesus in Mark, to those who repent. And in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, The prophet writes, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. This is the good news that is to be proclaimed to the poor. It's the benevolent and sovereign rule of God over his people. Jesus again comes on the scene and he said, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're poor in spirit, it is you who know the benefits of being ruled lovingly by a sovereign and benevolent king. Are you among the poor in spirit this morning? Are you among those who need to hear the good news? Are you poor in spirit because you're brokenhearted? Relationships in your life are falling apart, leaving you feeling broken? Are you among the poor in spirit because you're held captive to sin, that that sin that you have struggled to lay down at the foot of the cross has manifested its ugly head again one more time this week? Are you among the poor in spirit because you're bound You are bound and focused on something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you among the poor in spirit because you're longing for vengeance? You've been been hurt. You've been damaged. You have been wronged against. 
You've had evil exercised against you and all you can think about is getting even or getting your vengeance. Are you mourning a loss, a loss of a loved one, maybe loss of health that you once had? We have numerous ways on our mind that help us realize that we are poor. Help us realize we need to hear good news. We need to have a sovereign and a loving, benevolent king ruling over the affairs of our life. And this is the good news for each one of us. Wherever we are, your God reigns. Whatever you walked in here with today feeling, whatever is preoccupying your mind, the truth of the matter is, is you have a sovereign, a loving, a benevolent God and he is reigning over your life. Because he is sovereign, he can meet your needs. And because he's benevolent, he will rally all his resources, the best of his resources, to meet you at your deepest need. And the deepest need that any of us have is our problem with sin. And he did not withhold from his, his precious son but has sent him to, who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. John preached a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. We saw earlier in the first chapter of Mark. And now Jesus comes and he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom which points forward to a coming redeemer. And Mark now shows us that this Jesus is the one who is embodying the kingdom as he comes. He says the time of waiting is over. The kingdom of God is at hand and literally it has drawn near. He walks into Galilee embodying the kingdom of God and announcing the good news of God. And Mark will show us over and over again in these early verses that Jesus does have the authority of a sovereign, benevolent ruler. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 22, Mark will show us that Jesus is a teacher with authority. In 127, he shows us that Jesus has authority over the spirits, the unclean spirits, the demons. In 134, Mark shows us that Jesus has authority over disease and illnesses, infirmities. And in chapter 2, verse 10, Mark will show us that Jesus has on earth the authority to forgive sins. The people would not be ready to see this benevolent king ultimately die on the cross as he makes payment for their sins. But this is the good news that Jesus comes and prepares and proclaims there is a sovereign and a benevolent rule of God over you and this is good news. Listen to that powerful Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, as he talks about the idea of news versus advice. He says, advice is counsel about something that hasn't happened yet, but you can do something about it. News is a report about something that has happened, which you can't do anything about, because it has been done for you, and all you can do is respond to it. The difference between advice and news is that advice is something that you, you have the power to change the outcome, 
But news is something where the outcome has already happened and all you can do in that case is respond to it. Jesus comes onto the scene proclaiming good news. He's not giving good advice that you can choose to take or leave. He's giving you good news. And now we each one are confronted with how we will respond to it because that's all that you can do to news is respond to it. And Jesus commands radical response to this good news. This news is so good. This news is earth-shaking. And he calls for a radical response from his people. Look at the second half of verse 15. We'll read the whole thing. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus, just like John did in his preparatory ministry, calls people to repentance for forgiveness of sins. He proclaims the good news of God, the kingdom of God, the sovereign and benevolent rule of God over the affairs of men. And in response to that, he commands people to repent and to believe. We as Americans seldom like to hear people command us what to do. That's because we so often are led by people that lack integrity. But right here, we have the sovereign king of the universe, the one who was present at creation when he spoke a word and it came into being. This one, who is all-knowing, who is all-good, who is all-powerful, this is the one, the one who desires your best outcome, desires your, your highest good. This is the one who commands us to repent and to believe. In so doing, he invites us to trust him and to receive all the blessings that he makes available to us. All the promises that God made to be a blessing to the whole earth through Abraham, he now, in the person of Jesus, makes available to those who will repent and who will believe. It's a single act. If we're heading in one way, seeking life apart from God, and we're excellent at that, aren't we? We seek life in so many ways. Life in this fallen world is hard, so we seek to control our circumstances, and for some of us, control can be an idol. So if we are walking in this way, seeking to find our sense of security by the way we control our circumstances, repentance looks like letting go of that control and turning to God in faith and accepting his leadership in your life. For some of us, we reduce our world to the size of an object. Maybe it's an electronic device. Maybe it's a car. Maybe it's a motorcycle. Maybe it's another person but we reduce our world and our worth to something that we can see and touch and taste and feel. And our world goes as that object goes. For me, it was a car. When my car ran great, I was happy. When my engine had a misfire, I was a wreck. I had reduced my existence to a 4,000-pound hunk of steel. 
And for me, repentance meant letting go of that and turning toward God in faith and trusting him for my sense of identity, for my sense of security, for my sense of self-worth. It's only in Christ that you can understand that you are created in his image and you are precious in his sight. You have value, you have worth, but that worth is most purely and truly realized only when you repent and you turn back to him and you trust him by faith. That is one of the radical responses that he calls us to. And you can't turn from your sin without exercising faith. They go together. Charles Spurgeon talks about this in one of his sermons on this same passage and he helps us understand that this repentance and faith can be recognized and appreciated together. He says, in fact, this is how true Christians live. They repent as bitterly for sin as if they knew they should be damned for it, but they rejoice as much in Christ as if sin were nothing at all. Oh, how blessed it is to know where these two lines meet, the stripping of repentance and the clothing of faith, the repentance that ejects sin as an evil tenant and the faith which admits Christ to be the sole master of the heart, the repentance which purges the soul from dead works, and the faith that fills the soul with living works, the repentance which pulls down, and the faith which builds up, the repentance that scatters stones, and the faith which puts stones together, the repentance which ordains a time to weep, and the faith that gives a time to dance." These two things together make up the work of grace within, whereby men's souls are saved. Be it then laid down as a great truth, most plainly written in our text, that the repentance we ought to preach is one connected with faith. And thus we may preach repentance and faith together without any difficulty whatever. Repentance and faith go together in the Christian life. It is the means by which you enter into relationship with the Lord Jesus and find forgiveness for your sins for the first time. It is the means by which you do the daily walk with Jesus and grow in Christ's likeness, grow in intimacy with him. It's through the process of repentance and faith. That's why when we come together this morning and we sing that song, Lord have mercy, Walt had us to search our hearts for sin that was remaining there and laying it down. It's because we grow in Christ's likeness when we lay down our sins again and turn toward him in faith again so that we can weep bitterly for our sin because we really should be damned for it, but we can rejoice in it as if it were nothing at all because in Christ it has been paid for in full. This is the good news. Repentance and faith are one of the radical responses that Jesus commands his people to have. The next one is if we are to follow. Look at Mark 1, beginning at verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Jesus comes proclaiming the good news of a sovereign and benevolent king ruling over you. 
In response to that news, he commands repentance, he commands faith, and he commands now that we follow. And for Andrew and Simon, that meant that Jesus needed to hold a place in their heart and in their mind that was above their own vocation. Jesus wanders in along the Sea of Galilee and he finds there men doing what men would do alongside the sea. They would be involved in business, casting a net into the sea, seeking to catch fish so that they could sell them and make a living, feed the public. He wanders up to these guys who are in the midst of their business actually casting a net into the sea. They're actively fishing. And he says to them, follow me. And those words are also in the imperative tense, imperative mood. These are commands. This is not advice. Again, Jesus doesn't give advice. He gives news. And he calls us to radically respond. And these guys do. The text says that they leave their nets and they follow him. And they did that immediately. When Jesus calls you, he wants a place in your heart that's above your vocation. And as James and John were in their boat mending their nets with their father Zebedee and the hired servants, when they were called, they left immediately and they left behind their father. They left behind the hired servants. There was a relational cost that they paid to follow Christ. Jesus comes and he preaches good news and we can only respond to that good news. And right now he he calls and he says, follow me. And he says, I will make you fishers of men. As he does that, he invites them to join him in his ministry of fishing for men. He says, I will make you to become fishers of men. It seems like an uh, impossible task, doesn't it? Because God is extending that same call to you and to me. He calls us to repent and to believe and to find their forgiveness for our sins and rest for our souls. And he calls us to follow him so that this repentance and this faith is displayed in our lives so that it shows up in the way that we conduct ourselves in the workplace on Monday morning so that it shows up in the way we conduct ourselves around the dinner table with our family, in the way that we conduct ourselves on the street as we're driving in traffic. When Jesus says, follow me, he wants first place in your life. He wants first place in my life. And he invites you, he commands you even, to become a fisher of men which is to go on task with him in proclaiming the good news of God, God's sovereign, benevolent rule to people who are lost and need to realize it because they're living without a God. They are their own God. And Jesus invites Andrew and he invites Simon and James and John to become fishers of men. And this is what he's inviting and calling us to do too. And that can seem like an impossible task. But he resources you and me to join him in this work. When I was a farmer and a rancher up in North Dakota, we also operated a a ditching business where we made drainage ditches. We worked in the dirt and the mud, and it was a a dirty job. 
And I would hire people to help me and to, to run these ditchers as operators. And I, as I was training them, I, would to, I told them, I am going to call you to do some very dirty and undesirable tasks. They will be exhausting. But I promise you, I'll never ask you to do something that I haven't done myself. And I'll, I'll give you the resources that you need to be able to accomplish the task I call you to do. I'll give you the tools, I'll provide the fuel, I'll provide a truck. Everything that you need to do what I need, ask you to do, I'm going to provide it. And Jesus does this exponentially more. He calls you and he calls me to become fishers of men, to be proclaimers of the gospel to a lost and hurting world. And he has never called us to do something that he himself hasn't done. Keller says that the one who calls you, who called Simon and Andrew to leave their nets, who called James and John to leave their father, did so because he had already left his father's side and come down to earth. And he calls you to step outside your comfort zone and take the good news of the gospel to a lost and hurting world, and he resources you with his Holy Spirit that you and that I might be able to do just that so that we can, in fact, live lives that are a miracle, that are supernatural. He gives us his Holy Spirit. What Jesus calls you to do, he equips you to do. It will, however, require faith. He will ask you to do some things that you will see as impossible. He will ask you to do some things that are far outside your comfort zone. Perhaps he's doing that now. Perhaps some of you, under the conviction of the Spirit, are feeling that he's asking you for more. More of yourself. More of you name it. You know what he's asking you to do. And my desire today is that each one of us would cherish this good news, this this gracious act of a sovereign and benevolent king to rule over our lives and to trust him enough that we will live and order our lives under him. So let's ask the Lord to be at work. What is he asking of you this morning? Is he asking you to trust him for the first time? Is he asking you to trust him yet again, to lay down that besetting sin one more time? perhaps to confess it to a brother or a sister and help seek help in accountability? Is he asking you to release hold on this bank account that you have that you derive a sense of security from? Is he asking you to let go of a device or of a person? I don't know, but I know that the Lord is present and he wants to take over and have first priority in our lives. And I assure you that when we get there, we will know no greater blessing. You will never regret leaving go of something on this earth in order to lay hold of him who has laid hold of you and of me. I'd like to call the Grace Group Shepherds to come and encircle the room. There are some tags up here in baskets on either side of the stage. They're lanyards. They're going to put those on. And and it could be that the Spirit wants you to respond this morning in a way that you seek prayer from one of these counselors. They'll be glad to help you with that. Maybe, maybe the Lord's calling you deeper into Christianity and you want to know what it what it means to live a life of a Christian. There's a there's a class that meets upstairs next hour 
called Christianity Explored. We invite you to join in that class and dive in and answer that call. Let me pray. After I pray, Marla's going to sing, and I just want us to sit and let the Spirit work on our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news of your loving, benevolent, sovereign rule over our lives. And we do want to respond appropriately. We want to respond radically. We want to respond obediently. Would you help us to do that? Send forth your spirit now and give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.